Now to a story that will remind you perhaps of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It concerns explorers gate-crashing exotic lands said to hold the Ark of the Covenant and other sacred manuscripts and treasures, but the reality especially as seen by the country whose landsfolk and artefacts were ravaged by uh, British imperial troops, was one of devastation and immeasurable sadness, its ramifications being felt today in negotiations about the return of stolen objects to their homes. Now, in 1868, the target was Abyssinia, later known as Ethiopia the earliest Christian country in the world. And its king, Theodorus, was in the firing line for holding some European captives. It wasn't just the army who had him him and his fortress in its sights. The British Museum was there to loot and plunder. And they didn't just steal stuff. Also in their hall was a seven-year-old prince. Here to tell this extraordinary tale is the beautifully christened Andrew Heavens, whose new book, The Prince and the Plunder, How Britain Took One Small Boy and Hundreds of Treasures from Ethiopia, is hot off the history press. Now, Andrew grew up in Nigeria, Kenya and Egypt, and he makes his debut on the Little Wilders program, speaking to me from London. Andrew, the story about how you came across the story is an epic in itself. Yes, that's all right. It was great to talk to you, so thanks for having me on. I mean, this started um, at the turn of the millennium. I was living in Edinburgh and had a friend um, who was a priest in the Scottish Episcopal Church, the Reverend, another great name, the Reverend John McLucky. And he was um, bored one day, um, and he started digging around in the cupboards in his church, St John's Church on the west end of Princess Street. And he found this case right at the back of the cupboard, um, and inside he found a strange wooden carving, um, which I can't really describe for reasons we'll, descri- we'll discuss later. But he opened that up and looked on the edge of the case, and there were just a few words printed there in gold, and it said, Taken from Magdala, 1868. And it was really that discovery that kicked off this whole tale. He'd been in Ethiopia as a as a student, but by total luck, hence his, you know, his, his appropriate name. And he did a bit of research. And he d- discovered that this was no ordinary carving. This is what they call a tabot, a sacred representation of the Ark of the Covenant, which, if you're an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian, is possibly the most sacred thing you can conceive of. Um, it sits in the heart of a church and um, in a way provides its soul. Many people see it as representing the presence of God. So for some unforeseen reason at that time, this sacred, sacred carving had turned up at the back of a cupboard in a chilly Edinburgh church um, discovered just before Christmas uh, 2001-2000. And I was really digging into that story um, with John and the decisions that he made over what to do with that tabot that um, led to me writing The Prince and the Plunder. But it was, it was a life-changing moment for me and for John. Paint us a picture of what Abyssinia was like in the 1800s and, well, why was it so alluring to uh, British explorers? 
Well, I can certainly paint you a picture of how Britain saw it. And I think the reason that it was so alluring is that so little was known. At, at the time, this was in the years before the scramble for Africa, you know, before the great colonial powers had essentially carved up the continent into little squares and taken their bits and pieces. So um, Britain and other imperial powers were just nibbling at the edges of Africa. You know, they had ports which had used to uh, fuel the slave trade and they were now fueling trade into other into other commodities, um, including palm oil and that kind of thing. But it, as for the interior, for the Europeans, it was a great blank unknown part of their maps. And when you have a great unknown part of a map, you fill that with imagination and with fantasies and with all sorts of wanderings. I mean, there were various things that the British had to go on. Um, there was the myth of Prester John, the great African emperor, warrior, priest, king, who, who sort of strides across various myths and legends about Africa. And, you know, he obviously was thought to have all sorts of treasures buried here and there. There's Ethiopia's ancient link to Solomon. The, the emperors of Ethiopia trace their lineage back to Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. So again, obviously, you're, you're thinking about fantasies that grew into books like King Solomon's Minds. So these myths were all bubbling away in the land, in the minds of British explorers and zoologists and botanists and would-be imperialists. And, and, and of course, the Brits had also had, uh, well, in a sense, advance notice from the explorers Plowden and Bell. That's right. So the, some of the earliest British contact, um, contacts were um, a guy called Walter Plowden and John Bell, two kind of 20-something guys, six foot two, looking for adventure, younger sons, you know, who's been passed over in the family business and they set off and had several years of adventures hunting for elephants hunting for the source of the Nile which was still a big mystery in those days hunting for treasures and after a few years they got involved with the local politics Walter Plowden for one decided that this was going to be the way he forged his life he was going to build a huge relationship um, with between Britain and Ethiopia and the, and the emperors of Abyssinia he had in mind a great kind of Arthurian allegiance between the great empire, growing empire of Britain and the great Christian power of Abyssinia. And that's what he tried to do by writing letters back to London from Ethiopia. King uh, Teodros was very impressed with Brits and he was fascinated by British technology. And he writes a letter to Queen Victoria, a poignant letter. That's right. I mean, Emperor Teodros is one of the towering figures of African history, um, really one of the first great figures to confront the growing imperial powers of Britain. But at that stage, he was also a dreamer. He dreamt of a great alliance of Christian powers to take on uh, the Ottoman Empire and all, all his enemies that were surrounding him. And he saw himself as a, well, he was, he was a great Christian monarch in the heart of Ethiopia who'd forcibly brought together uh, all the warring princes and races. And he looked around him for his equals, the other great Christian leaders in, in the world. And one of those was Queen Victoria. He wrote her a couple of letters. The first one, he had a very direct emotional response, which is like, you know, you're a child of Christ. I'm a child of Christ. For God's sake, let us be friends. Walter Plowden died in, a, in a, an accident. And the, the, Britain sent over a replacement consul. And Emperor Childress was impatient to keep this relationship going. So he sent another very effusive, very emotional letter, which you can see in the National Archives here in London still, essentially asking for friendship, monarch to monarch, equal Christian leader to equal Christian leader. And unfortunately, um, while Walter Plowden had been a great dreamer and a romance-driven explorer, 
this time Tildras met the whole the, the brick wall of British bureaucracy. So this letter came to London. And as letters do, it got lost on a desk somewhere in Whitehall. And understandably, the king takes this as a snub. A huge snub. Nothing worse than offering friendship and not hearing anything back at all. You know, in, in a way, a, a sort of a, an insult or a snub would have been better. But total silence was seen as the ultimate sign of disdain and ignorance. I mean, in a way it was, but it was down to pure bureaucracy that it got lost. So uh, that combined with a few other things led him to start imprisoning the, the small handful of European missionaries and explorers and diplomats that were there in Ethiopia at the time. Now, the British are under pressure from the press and they're being uh, questioned in Parliament over the captives. So they decide it's war. Yes, absolutely. I mean, basically... Britain is, you can tell from the tone of the correspondence that Britain's government is most of all annoyed with these these missionaries constantly getting themselves into trouble in far-flung places of the world. But their main worry is is a, is a loss of face. That recently they had the Indian Mutiny, which in India these days is called the first war of independence, which was a very close-cut thing for Britain, you know, almost lost control of its main imperial possession. The last thing it wanted is for rumours to be spreading around the region of an African monarch who dared to imprison Britain's representative in Ethiopia and um, and the Red Sea region. So yes, it, after after lots of pressure and debate and, and hand-wringing and bean-counting, it mounted what was then one of the biggest military expeditions ever mounted, um, drawing on soldiers from British India, troops and mules coming down from London down the Red Sea, landed on the, on the, on the coast of the Red Sea um, late 1867. Onward Christian soldiers and the British Museum decides to go along. Well, this is one of the craziest things, and this really does set this imperial adventure apart, that in a way you can almost understand it, that plunder is picked up in the heat of a battle. You can imagine a soldier picking up a sword or a musket and taking that home as a souvenir. But in this case, and this is acknowledged by the British Museum, they saw that there was a big military force about to go into this magnificently mysterious kingdom of Abyssinia. So they got in touch with Parliament, said, Kate, can we send someone along, please? Because, you know, this is going to pass some pretty historic sites. And like, like the adventurers, the British Museum had dreams of amazing treasures, classical texts, all sorts of things they might pick up along the way. So they sent in a librarian, Richard Rivington Holmes, and gave him um, a whopping uh, budget to carry out um, digs along the way or to pick up anything he could. So in a very real sense, this this wasn't the British Museum getting stuff back from soldiers coming back. It set out with the soldiers. The British Museum went to war with a little band of boffins and specialists along with the soldiers. You know, there were meteorologists and experts in atmospheric pressure and um, zoologists. But uh, in those days, obviously, zoologists didn't went into conservation. They were into shooting everything they could see and... Uh, bringing back pickled remains for the, uh, the, 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 you know, the London Zoo and the, uh, what became the National History Museum. The 1868 battle was brutal. Tell us about the sad end of the king. It, it was. I mean, we essentially were talking about a totally unequal clash of technologies. Uh, the, the Ethiopians were armed with swords, spears and muskets, you know, the ones that you have to stuff a bullet down the barrel and reload after every shot. We had um, the latest rifles that could basically... Breech-loading rifles, you, you, you put a bullet in the side, shoot it, pull a bullet in the side, shoot it, and keep on going like that. So the first battle, Teldros risked it all by 
sending the bulk of his troops charging down from his unassailable fortress. He'd also built Africa's first artillery system, and he rained down shells and long shots and all sorts of things on top of the soldiers. But he hadn't reckoned on this these terrifying weapons that the British had brought along. And the whole thing was over, essentially, in about five hours of brutish massacre. You know, Britain lost, we're talking single figures, mostly wounded, a few dead. And the Ethiopians in that one big dash lost, the estimates were from 700 to more than 1,000. There were a couple of days, negotiations where the emperor agreed to send down the prisoners, hoping that would sort it out. He sent down a load of cattle as a peace offering, but that was misunderstood. They were turned away. And Britain, remember, Britain's main motivation here was to save face. It couldn't just march out of the kingdom with the emperor intact, the emperor that had shamed it. So they had one last assault on the mountain kingdom, charged in um, again with artillery and superior weapons. And when they broke through the barricades, they found the body of Teodros essentially on his own. He had Most of his troops had either died in the first rush or had fled, and they found him lying on the ground, and he'd taken his own life. Um, ironically, in the early days when Britain was trying to make friends, it had sent him, Queen Victoria had sent him a pistol um, as part of um, a, you know, a cluster of gifts that they were trying to win him over with. And it was, all the, the reporters on the scene insisted it was with that pistol that he, he took his own life. You, um, you describe soldiers brutalising his body, taking mementos of his hair, and then the looting, yeah. the looting really begins. What was taken? Well, Teldris had remember, he had this dream of unifying Ethiopia. So he, during his operations, he had built up a national library and national treasury. He had visions of a unified country in the same way that we all have our national libraries and national uh, museums in our capitals. So there was a lot, a lot of treasure on top of the mountain, hundreds of maybe more than a thousand beautifully illuminated manuscripts, gold crowns, all the regalia of his royal station and of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Da- everything from that down to clothes, kegs of honey, ted wine, and in the initial rush of the battle, I think the soldiers had been disappointed that they hadn't had a full-on battle because it had been such a walkover. So they kind of got ahead of steam up and charged over the fortress, over the over the top of Magdala, grabbing anything they could. The officers called a halt to that, but only to bring in a more organised form of plunder, which is essentially everything taken should be surrendered to a British officer. And they set up guards to sort of search the soldiers coming off the summit. And, and, two and, days later, and in the plunder, auction. and in the plunder, were two humans: the king's wife and his seven-year-old son. Exactly. As, as the dust settled, they found um, the king's wife, Queen Teranesh, and her retinue, and Prince Alamayu. From at this stage, the British would, would not have seen him as part of the plunder. Basically, they they saw a dilemma that Emperor Teodos' enemies were circling the mountain. Um, waiting to pick off anything they could. So the British army saw that his queen and his son were at risk of um, recriminations or being captured or, or worse by the enemies. So their focus was on getting out of there as quickly as they could. Because remember, this wasn't an imperial raid. Britain wasn't interested at this stage in grabbing territory. It just wanted to get the captives and get out. So they made the decision to take the queen and the son with them to some safer point uh, and and in, the, in, the, in the British eyes, this was to take them to a point of safety, to save them from the emperor's enemies. 
doesn't play out too well, of course, because the Queen uh, shortly dies, leaving the child an orphan. Yeah, this, this is a, one of the terrible things. that you, A basic act of empathy, you have to put yourself in the position of this little boy who has been on top of this mountain his whole life. That is his fixed horizon. And his father is an all-powerful emperor, very glamorous. What a, what a dad to have. And then suddenly his father is wiped out in a matter of days. He's left on his own, surrounded by his you know, these strange foreign enemies. At least he's got his mum, right? So they, they go down away from the mountain fortress towards the coast. And then a matter of weeks later, she falls ill. Um, it's the rainy season. She, there's some speculation that she had lingering infection, maybe tuberculosis. And on one stormy night, she, she, she dies um, on the route back. Her body is taken by uh, priests of a nearby church and buried just imagine it, you know, you're a six-year-old, I think he just turned seven by then, boy, all on his own. His his world had been destroyed, ripped up, again, surrounded by his enemies who were charging him towards the coast, this time with little planning, but just at great haste. He's brought to England by army officer and explorer, and here comes a, another wonderful name, Tristram Charles Sawyer Speedy. And he lives with Speedy on the Isle of Wight. He meets Tennyson and Darwin and is presented to Queen Victoria. Tell us about that encounter. Three days after his arrival, he's put on a steam train, which must have been terrifying in itself, and taken to the Isle of Wight, which is where Queen Victoria had her holiday palace. So weirdly, after all this time, you know, Emperor Theodore, Emperor Theodorus had dreamed of of a great alliance with Britain, Plowden and Bell, and, to, and everyone had dreamed of this great alliance. The great royal houses of Britain and Ethiopia finally got together on on a beach, on a holiday home on the Isle of Wight, where Prince Alamayu, now seven with his towering guardian, uh, walked off the boat, and Queen Victoria, who'd been painting the gardens, came down to meet him um, and sat on a terrace and formally greeted the representative of the Royal House of Ethiopia, this little boy, on an evening in June in 1868. She, a very deeply romantic woman, you know, she, still grieving for Prince Albert, fell in love with this vision of this little lost orphan and this giant red-headed romantic British officer who had become his guardian and announced that this is what would happen, that Captain Speedy would get, you know, a regular payment, would become his guardian, and that Prince Alamayu, the, the prince of Ethiopia of Abyssinia, would live in a coastal resort on the Isle of Wight with Captain Speedy, who got married a few months later. So much, so much to tell, so little time. How did the poor child die, Andrew? There's, I'll, I'll quickly fast forward through his story. He... Um, he stayed with Captain Speedy for a few years, who took him to India. Britain decided he needed a more formal education, so ordered him back, separated him from Captain Speedy, another father figure thrown on the trash pile. He was put in the uh, guardianship of Jex Blake, the headmaster of Cheltenham College. Jex Blake got a new job in rugby school, became the headmaster of rugby school, one of the Britain's great public schools. Um, Alamai went with him went through the British public school system. You know, you can only imagine the sort of the mix of, the confusing mix of royal treatment, top public schools, and the racism he would have faced as definitely the only black boy in the school, maybe the only black boy in the region. After that, he'd struggled at school. They decided they'd send him to officer training college, Sandhurst Military Training College, where he faced quite severe bullying, had a breakdown, crashed out of that course. 
he asked to go back to Ethiopia, but Britain said that was out of the question. He went to live with his tutor from rugby in Headingley, just outside Leeds. And in a horrible parallel to his mum's fate, he caught a chill one night in, in Leeds, caught a chest infection, which may have been TB, which does you know linger on and can be passed from person to person, and um, lay in bed with this worsening, worsening infection um, in Leeds midwinter with concerned telegrams pouring in from Queen Victoria and from all the people he'd got to know over those years. Queen Victoria was, was deeply upset at his death and uh, writes about it in her diary. And at her request, he's buried at St George's Chapel, Windsor. Later, you tell us, Queen Elizabeth II receives requests from Ethiopia for the return of his remains. What did the palace say? First of all, that there was a, a vague response that it would be difficult to um, track down his remains because he wasn't buried in a sort of formal royal vault. He was buried in catacombs outside the chapel. And there are obviously lots of people buried alongside him. So they said it would be difficult to find him. Later, Ethiopia repeated the request. And they got a very sympathetic and understanding letter back from the Queen's representative saying that she was in favour of a repatriation, but they felt that it would be impossible to move the prince's body without disturbing the remains of other people buried alongside him. What happened finally to the tabot from St John's Episcopal Church? Well, John McLucky decided that it should go back. He just felt that was an instinctive reaction. So he contacted the embassy, who were amazed that such a sacred artefact had turned up in such a place. Really, my life changed and John's life changed when a train pulled into Waverley Station, Edinburgh, uh, 2001, and out walked a huge delegation of priests from the Ethiopian uh, city of Aksum, which is where the Ark of the Covenant is said to lie. Um, another delegation of Rastafarians, because Rastafarians obviously revere Empress, Ethiopia's Emperor Haile Selassie. A huge delegation of Ethiopian Christians and people linked to Ethiopia came to this Anglican church on the west end of Prince's Street and kicked off a seven-hour part party, part mass, part celebration when the tablet was handed over to them. The tablet came to London where 200, 300 people came and then it was flown back to Ethiopia where 100,000 people, tens of thousands of people came out onto the streets between the airport and the city centre and watched it parade back. Much of the incredible treasures remain in the British Museum or the VNA, and uh, despite many requests from the Ethiopians for their return, and I know you're involved in that campaign, aren't you? I was involved in the uh, in the campaign for the return of, of the Tabot, which was a huge moment of celebration and a moment of unalloyed joy to show that repatriations can be wonderful things. They don't have to be moments of um, you know anger and imperial guilt and, and hand-wringing and soul-searching. That return has forged a permanent connection between Ethiopia and Scotland. As for the rest of them, this is there's been a long-running campaign from academics and um, historians and politicians in Ethiopia for its return. Um, and there's constant appeals to the British Museum, the VNA, all the main, the British Library, which has 250 manuscripts from the Magdala Hall. I've really stepped back to become a sort of an observer and a historian of of the repatriation campaign. It's for Ethiopia to ask for these things back, and it has regularly asked for them back. It's met a similar wall of bureaucracy because there are laws in Britain that ban institutions like the British Museum from returning things. All hail your efforts, Andrew, and your book. My guest has been Andrew Heavens. The book, The Prince and the Plunder, How Britain Took One Small Boy 
and Hundreds of Treasures from Ethiopia, published by the History Press. Overwhelming story. On our next, join us for a splash as we discuss how swimming has become a marker of class, of status and moral virtue, plus how our thinking about what makes a good death has changed over time. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.